Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Uh, if, if you're like me and you feel like compelled after the reading of Scripture to say praise be to God or amen, feel free to just go ahead and do that. The rest of us will catch up one day. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, hey, if you're visiting us this morning, my name is John. I'm uh, the pastor for Student and Young Adult Ministries here. Uh, I, I love being with you all. I'm thankful to be here today, um, and I am excited to share God's word with you all this morning. Uh, I do want to circle back briefly before we get into it to those connect cards. Uh, seriously, if there's anything that we can do, whether you're a visitor, you're a regular attender, covenant partner, anything that we can do to serve you, help you, if you need anything, you want to process anything at all, please fill out one of those cards, drop it in the offering box, um, and we, we really, really long to connect with one another, and that's one of the ways that we can do that uh, and communicate well doing that. So take full advantage of those connect cards in the, in the seat. Um, okay, let's, let's pray and ask God for help before we get into the word. Uh, Jesus, you are worthy of all praise. You are Lord of all. Jesus over everything. And Lord, as your uh, gospel of Luke has been showing us uh, since chapter one, you're a different kind of king. And we hear it all the time. Help us, God, to believe. So come, Holy Spirit. Uh, show us Christ. Do what only you can do. I must decrease. Jesus, you must increase. In your name we pray, amen. When you hear the phrases or phrases like this, uh, we ate like kings last night, or they treated us like royalty, what images come to mind? For the vast majority of us, we immediately think of fancy food, huge portions, over-the-top service, people treating us like we're far more important than we really are. We think of leisure, think of comfort, think of luxury. In reality, for the Christian, those who follow Jesus in his kingdom, what should come into mind when we think of eating like kings and being treated like royalty is the bread and the cup the body and the blood of King Jesus, because that's where the king is. We should have images of crowns made of thorns, the king with nail-pierced hands, words like marginalization, home away from home should come to mind because our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await a savior. This world is not our home. We actually shouldn't expect to be loved by the world that has rejected her king. Amen. The kingdom of God, like we've been saying all year long, is not like the kingdoms of this world. 
And following Jesus in his kingdom is radically counterintuitive. What I mean by counterintuitive is, is that following in the ways of Jesus don't feel normal. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't come naturally. We swim upstream. We really do go against the grain in so many ways. And one of the temptations that we constantly face is trying to fit God into our preconceived narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves the way things ought to be. And we try to fit God into that. When in reality, God is writing his story and he's written us into it. Don't we sort of go through life as though we're the author of our own stories and we're the main characters and our life kind of is written out according to our wants and dreams? And if we're honest, we we do write God into the story and he does play a major role after all. (laughs) Friends, the reality is, is that God is the author. God is the main character. He's the hero. He's the whole climax and point of this story and we've been written in as supporting actors. You see, our lives revolve around him and his kingdom. He doesn't revolve around us and our kingdoms. And, and friends, his kingdom is a very different kind of kingdom that we would expect. It is a counterintuitive kind of kingdom. In Luke chapter 19, we see that Jesus is finally at last making his entry into Jerusalem as king. But because all of the people have preconceived ideas as to what kind of king and kingdom they were waiting for, they totally missed it. And if you were with us last week, or if you won't, I'll catch you up briefly, uh, you'll remember that Jesus told a parable to those uh, he was with because they were expecting that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They were looking for uh, a military and political king who would overthrow the Roman oppressors and give them their power back. And that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus established, is it? He established a kingdom of peace between God and man by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead, taking his throne in heaven where he reigns and rules, not with power but with mercy and with grace, which is a very different kind of power. And in the same way that Jesus established his kingdom in an unexpected way, his kingdom advances in unexpected ways as well. So the big question for all of us this morning is this. What does it actually look like for us to live under the counterintuitive reign of Jesus? And as we walk through Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we'll look at this from three different angles. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is following Jesus under his counterintuitive reign looks like we go with him into hard places. Read with me verse 28. It says that when he had said these things, that is the parable about the nature of the kingdom, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Kent Hughes, he's a pastor, author, commentator. He says this. He says, Jesus was at the end of a journey that had begun some nine months before when he purposefully began a zigzag journey, first through Galilee and Samaria, then Perea, and finally to Judea. Ever since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. He has, he has locked in on going to the city of Jerusalem. He has, he has gone. It's been a nine-month journey, and finally he's arrived. And it's no secret what awaits him there. Just last chapter in Luke 18, verse 31 through 33, Jesus tells his disciples very plainly. He says, he says look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked 
and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. See, Jesus was set on the mission that he had received from the Father. He came to seek and save the lost. He was set on Jerusalem where he would be rejected, mocked, shamed, and ultimately crucified. Notice that it says in our passage here in verse 28 that he went on ahead. He went on ahead, that is, ahead of his disciples who were following him. You see, we need to get this clear in our minds. Jesus has a unique mission that was accomplished by himself. He alone was going to make it possible for reconciliation between man and God. He alone was going to atone for the sins of humanity on the cross. We don't add anything to that equation whatsoever. And yet, he leads his people right into the very place where he's going to be rejected. Following Jesus means that we go where he leads. And the whole mission of the triune God from eternity past was that Jesus would come into the world on a rescue mission, and that meant that he was going to go into the darkest and most difficult of places. Jesus is the light of the world that shines into darkness. And aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't stand at arm's length for those of us who are hurting? Aren't you thankful that Jesus is the kind of king who actually goes into war on behalf of his people rather than sending a delegation? Aren't you thankful that Jesus isn't simply seeking to transform societies by legislating new laws, but never actually addressing the real problem of the human heart? Aren't you thankful that Jesus came into our darkness? Praise God that he goes into the dark and difficult places, and praise God that he can actually bring about real transformation. And in the same way that Jesus accomplished that was through suffering. All continual transformation and gospel advancement will move forward through sacrifice and suffering. In the same way that Jesus brought salvation by being crucified on that tree, we, his church, proclaim and display that salvation by going into dark and difficult places with the hope of the gospel. Love compels us to follow Jesus where Jesus is needed. And friends, we can't, we can't have the person of Jesus without the narrative of Jesus, the story of Jesus. The whole story of Jesus is that he came and went down into death and through death, resurrection came. We, we, we can't follow the crucified, risen Christ if we're unwilling to suffer with him. In fact, uh, the Apostle Paul saw this so clearly. His whole life was marked by this theme of Dying with Christ, sharing in Christ's sufferings, and rising with Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. He says this. He says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. See how that works? The Apostle Paul saw that Jesus, the God-man, came into the world, went to the cross, rose from the dead, and that's how life came. We who follow this Jesus, we who are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, follow that same pattern, that same path. We sacrifice. We go into hard places 
and Jesus brings about resurrection life in astonishingly surprising ways. Uh, every year, uh, here we, we invite Teen Challenge to come and worship with us one Sunday, and it's a, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful Sunday. There's something really special, isn't there, about hearing testimonies about God's saving grace in dark and difficult places? It's like the sweetest thing. Um, do you guys know how Teen Challenge started in the 1960s? It's an amazing story. Uh, you can read about it in the autobiography Between the Cross and the Switchblade, but it was uh, started by a guy named David Wilkerson. David Wilkerson, he was a small-town, rural church pastor in a farm town. Uh, he was a nobody. Among, like, I think his church had like less than 50 people in it. And one night in his study at home, late in the night, uh, he was reading through Life magazine. And as he's flipping the pages, one of the pictures caught his attention. And uh, the picture that grab, uh, grabbed him was this picture of seven young boys, like 12, 13-year-old boys. But what really caught his attention was the look in their eyes. Um, they were empty, hollow. If there was any emotion, it was rage. And as he read the article, he starts weeping. He doesn't know why, but he finds out that these are seven kids from New York City who are involved in the gangs in New York City who are on trial for murder. And the story goes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awful story, right? They were, they were on trial for murdering an innocent person. They were bragging about it to all the other people. That's how they got arrested. Now they're on trial, and Life magazine was covering the trial. And, and he starts crying and weeping. He's saying, this is ridiculous. I'm 350 miles away from New York. I'm a farm boy. Like, why, do I, why am I affected by what's going on in New York City? This is ridiculous. And as he's trying to wipe his tears and move on, the Holy Spirit says, uh, go to New York and help those boys. And he tries to suppress the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, go to New York and help those boys. And he's wrestling with God in his study in the middle of the night, and, and eventually he, he submits to God and says, fine, I'll just go during the trial, I'll visit you know, once a week, and whatever you want to do, fine, so be it. So he ends up taking these trips, 350 miles one way, once a week, to New York during this trial of these seven boys. And throughout that process, his heart begins to break. He realizes this isn't a unique thing, these seven boys, that all sorts of kids are caught up in gangs in New York City, that there is a deep darkness and there's a deep lostness. And so he keeps going, he keeps going, and the trial's over, and he can't shake it. So he keeps taking trips to New York City, small town farm boys thing. Maybe I can meet one of these kids in these gangs who aren't in jail. So he tries and he's rejected, he's mocked, he's scorned, he's threatened. One guy, you know, has said, Step, take one step closer to me, I'm going to dice you up into pieces. And he says, yeah, and every one of those pieces is going to keep on loving you. Anyways, one of these kids comes to faith in Christ. Happened to be one of the leaders of the gang, so now he's got to in with the gangs. And more kids come to faith in Christ, and more kids come to faith in Christ. Eventually he leaves his rural town, moves to New York, and all these kids are coming to faith in Jesus. And he's thinking, how are we going to disciple these kids? So they start buying houses to house them and disciple them. And Teen Challenge is birthed, and here we are, 60-some years later, there's like 200 teen challenges around the United States, over 1,000 worldwide. Jesus is still in the business of going into dark places to reach broken people with the hope of the gospel. And it started with one man saying, I don't have anything to offer, but I'm going to follow Jesus into the hard place. 
Now, this is a parachurch ministry with a very limited scope. Just think about all that God has done over the last 2,000 years through his church, empowered by the Spirit, going into dark and difficult places, places where there is no gospel. Friends, we are here this morning because a group of people dared to believe Victoria needs the gospel. It might not be like downtown New York gang-ridden place, but without Jesus, this place is lost. Friends, going into the dark and difficult places for many of us means going across the street to our neighbors. It means going into the schools. Did you know that in Carver County, the the quickest uh, growing religious belief is the nuns? Those who profess no faith in any type of religion whatsoever. There's a whole generation of people who are growing up as if God weren't real in our backyards, as if there was no hope of the gospel, as if Jesus didn't actually come to seek and save the lost, raise from the dead, gather his people to himself, give us a hope beyond our circumstances. There is a whole generation of people who only hope in their circumstances. Friends, my dear friends, to follow Jesus in his counterintuitive reigns means we go to people who need Jesus. We don't retract from them. There once was a time when a church could put on a sweet Sunday service and have great rock bands and flashy lights and all that, and people who don't know Jesus would come. Friends, those days are long gone. We can't sit and wait for people who don't know Jesus to come to us. Friends, we've got to go to them with the hope of the gospel. True. We go with Jesus into the hard and difficult places. Amen. To live under the counterintuitive reign of Jesus means that we follow him into, not out of the hard places that he leads. And for many of us, that might just be our own families, our own neighborhoods, our own workplaces, the sports teams that we're on. Jesus went into Jerusalem to secure salvation for those who would believe. He went to be mocked and shamed and ultimately crucified for our sins, and we carry that message into the world that has rejected him, trusting, listen, trusting that he will bring about resurrection life in and through all the sacrifices that we make in astonishingly surprising ways. The second way that we live under the counterintuitive reign of Jesus, it looks like humility and surrender. Read with me verses 29 through 34. It says, and when he drew near to Bethphage and to Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and uh, found it as, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, this owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So here we are. Uh, these two cities, Bethphage and Bethany, they're about a mile outside of Jerusalem. So you can see Jerusalem in the distance. You can see it up on the mountain. Um, and what's really interesting is all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, you see him and his disciples walking everywhere. You never see Jesus riding anything for any reason so he certainly could have finished the journey on his feet, right? But he, he says, I need a colt. I need to go into Jerusalem on a colt. What's going on here? Now, a little historical background might be helpful. It was very normal for kings, kings to ride into their cities um, with an entourage. They would ride in on a war horse coming back out of war, proclaiming and bragging about the victory that they just had, had come out of. And... Um, We see Jesus, the true king, coming into a city, don't we? But we don't see Jesus riding on a war horse. 
He's coming on a donkey. He's coming not from slaying his enemies, he's coming to save his enemies. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice that the donkey's a sign of humility, of lowliness, of accessibility. Jesus didn't come like all the other kings, boastful and riding into, in on a war horse. He came lowly. Philip Ryken, he says this. He says, the donkey stands out as a deliberate rejection of the symbol of arrogant trust in human might, expressing subservience to the sovereignty of God. Jerusalem's king is of humble character, yet victorious. And so it has always been that the church does not, this is, this is good, listen, the church does not effectively spread the gospel by sword or by arrogance, but by mirroring the humble spirit of its king and savior. Rather than riding in to set everyone straight, we are more like Jesus when we come to people with our savior's gentleness and peace. Friends, we don't go into dark and difficult places telling everyone how they're wrong and we're right arrogantly. And how many of us have been turned off by that type of religious superiority? The world doesn't need arrogance. The world needs the gentle, humble Savior who came to seek and save the lost, who draws near to the brokenhearted. It's been said that humility is a recognition and embrace of the fact that our lives are not our own. There used to be this guy in my life. He would walk around. He was kind of crazy, but he was wonderful. He always say, death to self, that's the goal. Death to self, that's the goal. And I was like, okay, you're weird and crazy, but that's very true. (laughs) Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus, the humble, gentle, peace-bringing servant king. And friends, if Jesus is humble at heart and he established his kingdom in humility and he reigns in humility, then that means we join in his kingdom advancing in humility. The very posture of all of our lives needs to be humble, gentle, lowly, accessible. It's the open-handed surrender of our whole lives and all that we have. It's a deep desire that Christ's name, not our name, be glorified in however he chooses to use us. I love, Luke does something kind of interesting in this passage, and I love it. Notice that the two disciples who he sends out to, to collect this colt are unnamed. Think about that. It's funny, you read some commentaries, and all these guys are getting technical, trying to debate who they are, and maybe it's John, maybe it's Peter, because they were like the two leaders. They're just totally missing the point. They're unnamed for a reason. It's not about them. It's about the king. Notice the owners of the donkey are unnamed. They gave up, perhaps. A lot of people say they're probably poor because there's multiple owners to one donkey. They probably gave up all they had for the king, and we don't even know their names. Oh, God forbid that we want to make a name for ourselves. I love that we're in small town Minnesota, not known by anyone, that we're frustrated with the small size of our building and all of that. Friends, Jesus can do amazing things with a small group of people totally surrendered to him. Um... You know, any of you who know me, uh, 
personally at all, you know that my greatest sin struggle is pride. Um, <laughs> I often laugh about the fact that after I became a Christian, the first book that someone gave me was Andrew Murray's book, Humility. <laughs> you know, it's like, hello, John, let's start here and don't move on. <laughs> um, there's this part of me that, and I say this because, not, not to say look at me, but I, I don't think I'm the only one. Um, it's part of me that believes that if I can learn enough, God will use me. If I can do enough, God will advance his kingdom through me. If I can preach clear enough, if I'm relatable enough. Friends, that's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. In all those thoughts and beliefs, I'm at the center of it all, functioning as Lord rather than Jesus. Pride, not lack of skill or competency or knowledge, is the greatest hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God in all of us. The best thing that God can do for us as a people is humble us and keep us humble. Uh, there's this, in Luke, back to Luke 18, uh, 19, there's this really cool wordplay in this section of scripture that we, we don't see in English, and it's unfortunate. Um, but look with me at verse 33. Uh, verse 33 says, as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And in there's verse 34, it says that, the disciples responded, the Lord has need of it. Uh, the word owners in verse 33 and the word Lord in verse 34, the exact same word, which is kind of interesting. It could be translated like this. The Lord said, why are you untying it? And the disciples responded, the Lord, capital L, needs of it. What's Luke saying there? The humble king is Lord of all. He is Lord over all lords, and he welcomes us to come under his lordship and surrender all of our possessions for his use. Nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to the king. And this is amazing because this means that there is nothing too small surrendered to the king uh, that can't be used for great kingdom purposes. Pride says that we must first be something great in order to be used by God. Humility says that anything and everything surrendered to the Lord can be used greatly by him because he is the Lord and not us. Even the smallest things that, that, that will never be noticed by anyone surrendered to the Lord by faith will be used mightily by God. This is how God loves to work. If you read throughout the history of the church, almost all of the revivals that have broken out when uh, whole communities are transformed, when people are, are coming to faith in Christ and people are being healed of brokenness and hardships, when God works powerfully, it almost always starts, listen, with a group of young people. Young people, you have so much to offer. A group of young people who no one knows anything about who get together and say, God must work, so let's cry out to him in prayer. Or <laughs> old praying ladies. Just this, I'm, hmm. this, this morning, after the first service, um, <laughs> someone, someone came up to me that I haven't seen in a few years. It was really sweet. They came from a different church to visit. Um, and the guy had tears in his eyes, and he said, I'm really emotional this morning. He said, John, it's not because of you. I said, oh, thank God. <laughs> he says, uh, your grandma. I remember your grandma. And he looked at me, and he said, your grandma loved my kids so well. 
your grandma taught them verses in Awana every single week. And every time we drive by your grandma's house on Highway 7 there where she no longer is anymore, we break, our hearts break, and we thank God. No one knows who my grandma is, but I am convinced that I'm a Christian because of my grandma. Now, when I was running so far from the Lord, she was on her knees praying. And this family who came in this morning, their kids have been blessed greatly because of my grandma, who no one knows who my grandma is except my family. But the kingdom of God was advanced through my grandma. Oh, guys, God can use you. God can use you to do great things. And he's not looking for the experts. He's not looking for those who have it together. He's looking for people who will humble themselves and surrender to the Lord. Um, yesterday, Chelsea and I were reminiscing. Um, there's moments in every believer's life, I'm, I'm convinced of, um, where we're kind of at a breaking point. And all we can do is cry out and say, God, I have nothing to offer you. Just take my life and use it however you want. Surrender everything. Just use my life how you desire because things aren't going well. Have you guys been at that point before? I mean, you just a prayer of desperation, sincere, at the bottom. Chelsea and I were looking back at all the ways that God answered that prayer from all those years ago in our lives. And let me tell you, our lives are not how we would have written. <laughs> it's not, they didn't go according to our plan. But I would not have had it any other way. God has been so good and so faithful simply by answering that prayer of desperation and surrender. Take our lives and do with it however you please. Friends, for all of us this morning, I think it's a perfect time again to say, Father, my life is yours. My family is yours. My kids are yours. My house is yours. My friends, my plans, my dreams, my ambitions, Lord, it's, it's yours. Take it and use it however you please. And friends, let's look back 20 years from now and be astonished at all that God does. Living under the counterintuitive reign of Jesus means following Jesus into difficult places, and it looks like a life of humility and surrender. And lastly, it looks like a people who praise. Read with me verses 35 through 40. It says, and they brought it to Jesus, and that is the, the, the cult, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. <laughs> I love that. Um, the disciples got a lot of things wrong. <laughs> we read the disciples and we're like, oh, I can relate, I can relate, I can relate, I can relate. And it's never the good stuff, right? <laughs> at, least, at least for me. Um, but, but they got this one right. They, they, they knew who Jesus was. They saw that he was the king. And as we learned last week, they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom, right? They thought it was going to appear immediately, but they did understand that Jesus was the king. They got that absolutely right. And in this text, Jesus was, in not so subtle ways, declaring himself to be the king. He was owning it. No longer was he telling his followers to be silent. All throughout Luke's gospel, every time someone gets a glimpse of his kingship, he tells them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Friends, he's going public here. His time 
has come. And, 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 and Luke kind of shows us this in a couple interesting ways. Uh, they, they lifted Jesus up onto the colt, exalting him like a king. And they threw their cloaks on the ground like they would any king, giving him a royal entry. And uh, this week I was talking to some people kind of nerding out a little bit. And I was like, you want to hear something really awesome that's kind of nerdy, though, about this passage? And I'm going to share it with all of you. And I think it's wonderful. Um, where it says that uh, in verse 37, as, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Uh, that's an echo, that's an illusion, that's a reversal from an Old Testament story found in 2 Samuel 15. And in 2 Samuel 15, the story is that King David is the king. He's a rightful king of uh, Israel, but his son Absalom had conspired against him. And he drove him out uh, of, of Jerusalem. And it says in Second uh, Samuel 15.30 that as he was being ran out of Jerusalem, it says, as David ascended the Mount of Olives, he and all those who were with him were weeping as they went. The king was dethroned. But now here's Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives, and everyone with him is rejoicing. The king has returned, my dear friends. The, the, the son of David, whose rightful throne is his, has, has come, and all those who are with him are seeing it and rejoicing because it is good news that the king has come. Friends, no longer is the throne unoccupied or occupied by a faulty king. The true king has come at last. Now, we live in a world, don't we? Uh, let me back up. Um, all the disciples were rejoicing and praising God for the things that he had done. Now compare that with the world that we live in, right? We live in a world where our lives are built on what we have done, on what we have accomplished, on the resumes that we have built. We celebrate our victories. We rejoice in our accomplishments. But in the kingdom of God, we rejoice in what another has done. The re the disciples rejoiced because of the mighty works that God had accomplished. I love this. I just love putting myself uh, like I was a fly on the wall watching this entourage coming to Jerusalem. If you were there that day and you asked the disciples, what's all the commotion about? They most definitely would have responded by something like this. Haven't you heard? Haven't you seen? No? Oh, let me tell you about when this Jesus first came on the scene. And he started to proclaim that the kingdom of God had come. And then he started healing everyone. Let me tell you about the time when, when this Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and, and in comes this man who was possessed by a demon, disrupting everything. And Jesus looked at him and with a single word, he, he, he rebuked the demon. The demon fled. Let me tell you about that time when I first met Jesus. And he, he knew everything about me. All my sin all my failures, and he said, you're forgiven. Let me tell you about when he stood up to me, when all stood up for me, when all the religious leaders wanted to condemn me. Let me tell you about that time when he touched a leper, and rather than him becoming unclean, the leper became clean. Let me tell you about that time he walked on water when he, the, the wind obeyed his voice. Let me tell you about that time he fed 5,000 people with a few fish and some bread. Or, or when he actually empowered us nobodies to go into the cities and proclaim the gospel and heal the sick and cast out demons. I could go on and on about all the ways he's been patient with me. All the ways that he's been merciful to me. All the ways that he's been gracious to me. And Waterbrook Church, we can look back with clearer vision and say, let me tell you about that time the Lord of glory was nailed to the tree. 
When he cried out, forgive them because they don't know what they do. Let me tell you about he was crucified so that we could go free. Let me tell you about how he was buried in the tomb, but on the third day he rose from the dead. Let me tell you about how that grave couldn't hold him, my friends, how, how death could not stop him, how the king of glory rose victoriously from the dead. Nothing could stop him. No one could prevent him. Life had come. The new creation had come. Let me tell you about how lost I was, but now I'm found. Let me tell you how I was running the opposite way and Jesus, King Jesus, hunted me down. Let me tell you about all the ways that God's been merciful to me, all the ways that he's been gracious to me, all the ways he's been patient with me, how he's never grown tired of me. He's never let his love up on me. He's never wavered once. What about you? What great works has God done in your life? What wounds has he tended to? What sin has he pardoned? What family members has he restored? In what ways has he brought you back, kept you in his love? How has he restored hope even when your circumstances haven't changed? We have so much that we can praise God for. Friends, all of the benefits of Christ have been poured out onto us freely by his grace. He has done everything for our salvation through the cross and resurrection. And because of God's free grace to us, we can say yes and amen to crazy things like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. He says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Even in our sufferings, we can rejoice. Even in our hardships, we can have hope because we belong to the King. Because of the radically counterintuitive reign of King Jesus, we always have something to praise God for. But because we live in the already but not yet fully realized kingdom of God, there will always be people trying to silence the people of God. Look at verse 39 and 40. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I remember a few years ago, my wife Chelsea and I, we had a neighbor over for dinner. And during the conversation, we were telling our neighbor our testimony. We were telling about how God had rescued us and saved us and turned our life around. And, and as Chelsea and I were retelling the great works of God, our hearts were full of joy. We were getting thrilled. We were so excited. And then, like, the saddest thing happened. Neighbor looked at us straight in the eye and said, no, you turned your life around. And you should be very proud of that. Jesus had nothing to do with that. And I'm sure many of us have similar stories, right? We're just rejoicing in God and it just falls on deaf ears. Celebrating all that the king has done. And people are saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Waterbrook, I want us to hear Jesus together, right? He says, the most natural and appropriate thing in the universe is to praise him because of who he is. In fact, all of creation praises God. All of creation gladly displays and proclaims the glory of God. The most unnatural and inappropriate thing in the universe is for those who are created in the image of God to not praise him. So Jesus is telling us, just keep on going. Just keep on praising. Don't let anyone silence you. Don't let anyone stop you. Don't let anyone make you think that you're the odd one for rejoicing and praise 
uh, for rejoicing and praising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Just keep on going. We're not the odd ones, my dear friends. <laughs> Isn't Jesus worthy of our praise? Living under the counterintuitive reign of King Jesus means that we are a praising people. And friends, there's coming a day when this king will return. The sky will crack open and Jesus, he, he won't be riding on a donkey that day. He's come to set things right. Victory belongs to the king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords is going to return and make all things new and to, to finally and fully bring about complete justice, complete peace, complete freedom, complete joy and happiness, and we will see him face to face. All of our sorrow will be undone. All our wounds will be healed at last. There's, Revelation 21 says that he's coming with a new Jerusalem, adorned as a bride for her king, Friends, we're going to be radiant in the presence of our King. So while we wait for that day, that great day, while we live under the counterintuitive reign of King Jesus, let's keep going to the hard places with Him. Let's keep surrendering all of our lives and all we have for His use. Let's keep praising Him, no matter what anyone says, for all that He has done. Amen? Amen. All right. Jesus, you are so worthy of our praise. We thank you and we praise you for your word, your saving gospel. Thanks for the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us now to respond uh, as you are leading each of us individually. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.